My name's David and this is the Hypothetic RL, the podcast about the what-ifs of rugby league history. On the other end of the line, I have Phil Kaplan, noted publisher, noted podcaster, and all-round expert in the English game, I'd say, Phil. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. How are you? Good to speak to you. I think you may say expert. Trey's descriptions over here may well uh, dispute that, to be honest. Well, look, I, I must say that I listen to 4020 live, not live, wherever it is, and uh, I, I find myself nodding in agreement a lot of times when you speak. So, uh, look, at least you've got one person in Australia who agrees with you. Um, <laughs> so that that's all fine, and, and I'm sure there's many, many others who agree with your points of view about the English game and, and even the NRL when you talk about that as well. Well, you're, you're very kind, and uh, I'm just a fan with a pen. <laughs> No, that's fine. Well, that's that's all we all are. You know, we're all just fans. I don't have a pen. I have a microphone. So we're all just fans who love the game. So that's that's and it's really great to have you on and and just to chat about the subject. The topic that we're going to do for today um, is a bit of a strange one. Did you want to just just walk us through really quickly uh, what you wanted to talk about, Phil? I think. Um Again, just looking at the title of the podcast, it, it you know it shrieks of of retrospective. So mm. it's it's something perhaps to to look back on mm. rather than it be a game. It's more a concept, yeah. um, and and of course marketing didn't exist when the Northern Union was formed, and an image wasn't perhaps the most important thing that was on people's minds at the time. But I've just got this lingering feeling that that I've had for quite a while that. Um, We've got a problem with our identity yep. and that we're self-limiting in what we've called ourselves. And you can trace it right back to that meeting at 1895 and the words Northern Rugby Union. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think there's been opportunities in in the sport, three or four of them perhaps, to have looked at our name, which in some ways determines who we are. Um, I think we've been self-limiting and that has affected our our self-confidence and and i think that had we been a little bit more brash had we had we had um had we called ourselves something that wasn't uh, on the back of another sport Mm -hmm. then perhaps there may be a different perception of us on both sides of the world definitely so i suppose our event is it's almost two events because you know we're talking about the game being called rugby league in australia in 1908 so you've got 1895 that meeting at the george hotel and the decision to na- those clubs to name themselves the Northern Union, and then obviously in 1908 in Australia, the decision of those breakaway clubs to name themselves Rugby League. So uh, I suppose there's not much history you can do before that. Obviously, we could talk about the fact that you know Rugby Union has been a sport for you know, quite some years before, and uh, you, know, you had the breakaway, you had the Northern Union. I think everyone's heard that story before. I don't want to sort of go over the reasons for it. We all kind of know. Uh, but I think we just we move forward and we sort of talk about, you know, what what could have been the possible alternatives for calling themselves Northern Union or Rugby League. Did you did you have a thought about anything like that? Yeah, I, I think there's been four occasions um, when the sport could have looked at its identity, and one of the things again it, it failed to do mm-hmm. was 1922 because the Australians cabled over to the RFL and said. Can you please stop calling your sport Northern Union? Because the problem that we've got over here is that whenever we play things like test matches, mm-hmm. um, we, we've got confusion because we've been called Rugby League from where we started. And, and would you mind changing your name? So I, I think that was the time when both of the sports could have come together Definitely. and realised that there are three elements to this. One is the word Northern. Um, mm-hmm. Now, clearly in 1895, it was the Northern Clubs. Mm-hmm. Um, but once you saddle yourself with the word northern, um, you're geographically limiting. And when you think that very early on, um, the game over here was looking at places like Wales, the northeast, London, and was taking test matches to, to the Midlands and to Scotland, mm-hmm. um, there's always been a concerted effort to expand without ever having a plan to do it. By having northern in your name, um, you're immediately then limiting yourself. I think when you look at the word union, 
mm-hmm. um, again, you know, you are essentially a breakaway, but you're still retaining something with with the mothership, if you like, and and that doesn't give you the license necessarily to to say why you're different. Now the rules were pretty much the same until 1903, so again you can understand that. Yeah. And then you look at the word rugby, mm-hmm. um, which obviously is related to rugby school, which, as as our great friend Professor Tony Collins has has proved time and again, is a myth. Yes. Uh, there's no link to rugby school from the league part of it. Um, you know, as far as I can remember, there was an exhibition game in 2000 at the school to launch the World Cup. But other than that, you know, league has never been played on that sacred pitch. And uh, yeah. and the William Webb Ellis Trophy, it, again, is not something that belongs to us. But it's very hard to create um, your image or your self-image if you're constantly being referred to something else. So, yeah, 1895, you can sort of understand it. it mm-hmm. you know, what are we, we're a week away from starting a new competition. What we're going to call ourselves is effectively the rugby union played by the Northern clubs. It's yeah. Northern Union. Yeah. But I think once you start tinkering with the rules and, and, and you know, bringing in the play the ball and taking out the line out, dropping to 13 players, you need something that says it's you and not somebody else. Yeah. 1922, as I say, was a was a seminal moment where the sports on both sides of the world could have come together, and instead of um, the rugby league here just saying we will adopt a name that already exists, sitting down with their Australian counterparts and saying, okay, you know, we're we're sort of 30 years in, what is it we're trying to achieve here? You know, how, how we we've sort of got a real foothold in two sides of the you know, of the world, but but how do we expand on that? And, yeah. and I think there are a couple of other examples. You know, 1987, the Rugby Union World Cup mm-hmm. came out yep. and registered Rugby World Cup. Yes. Now, we had an opportunity to sue them. Uh, we already, as you know, had had a World Cup since 1954. It was generally acknowledged that um, as the second World Cup ever played in team sport, um, yeah, it, yeah. it had precedence. And, and the advice to the Rugby Football League was to sue the union. Over the over the name Rugby World Cup, um, and again I think because we backed down and didn't because of fear of um, the cost of litigation, we again surrendered the initiative. So that over here, yeah. um, rugby is automatically associated with rugby union, um, That's right. and and I think again that was a major opportunity missed. And then the final one uh, where again we could have come together was was ninety five and. And the, mm-hmm. the advent of Super League. So whilst clearly there was some political machinations going on in Australia, and it took a couple of years to, to get Super League established as a name, there is a brand there that mm-hmm. is the same on both sides of the world. But we've never really called it Super League. Um, you, you know, you still call it footy. We, we still call it Rugby League. Um, and, and I think that, again, without you having an identity, mm-hmm. um, it's very, very hard to, to promote and get the column inches you need when, uh, particularly outside of the areas where it is dominant and strong, mm-hmm. um, you, you know, it, it's too easily marginalised. So, yeah, I, I, what would I call it? Which was your original question? There's a rambling answer. <laughs> no, that's fine. For. That's okay. Look, I'll, uh, I'll, I, I'll let you go to that and then I'll probably have to respond to all the all the bits you've just said then too as well. So, uh, yeah, I'll give you a... An, an, a quick little a few seconds to say what you'd like to call it and then we can just go over the probably four hours worth of content you've done in about 20 <laughs> seconds well what, what i thought getting to the the super league um if you like amalgamation of image mm. um in, in and around 95 was that we had the opportunity to to call it league 13 because mm-hmm. i think the important word is league and not rugby um, yes. League does distinguish it, and and again, everything now is is numerals or um, shortened versions, and thirteen is what distinguishes us. Yeah. Um, uh, so I think you know League Thirteen would have worked, uh, but it had to apply to the game across the entire globe and the international game. So we'd have you know League Thirteen Test matches, you know, League Thirteen World Club Challenge, mm-hmm. uh, wh- what, whatever we did would have to be under the banner of League Thirteen. I think we. We just missed an opportunity. The alternative is is you have NRL because clearly all sports now are foreshortened to their initials. NRL works. Yeah. Um, it certainly works better than ARL. <laughs> um, we should have had perhaps ESL, which would have been European Super League. Um, well, again, I, I have called it that many times. 
Yeah, I, I yeah. call it ESL and no one knows what I'm talking about. So I have to write, yeah. usually it's, usually it's just called SL, you know, when I'm trying to type it on Twitter or something like that. But even then I feel like, does anyone understand what that means? Do they know what I'm talking about? No. Yeah. And the other thing, of course, is other sports like netball, which are pretty vibrant over here at the moment. They now have mm. Super League. So again, yeah. we had a, a 20 year leading on getting the definitive Super League competition. And we, I, I don't think we, uh, we exploited that to our best advantage. No, that's right. Well, I think over in, in Australia, there is... It wasn't a united front. If if there was a united front and, and all clubs and players had decided that Super League was the way to go forward, and they would have, you know, obviously would have not had that war that we had, uh, it, it may well have... Well, would have been called the Australian Super League if they if they had taken over. But, you know, there was the fight from, from all the old club bosses and, you know, it never... I, I'm still not even sure who won that war. We don't really know. We think Super League won it, but we're not really sure because it just became this amalgamation. So that's that's probably the reason why we don't... We couldn't really do that at the time because we could even barely run one competition without arguing, you know, that we couldn't actually work I that think out. You're right, but I think the question is you don't do it at the time. You go mm-hmm. back to 1895 and it becomes a matter of expediency, but some time Mm. afterwards not a long time afterwards when people realize you don't get too many opportunities to have a new beginning Mm -hmm. to re-establish yourself um that that's the time we should have said you know two or three years in when it had settled down we realized that um there there was a a common marketing tool across the game we never used it I, i mean before before you come back one of the other things I was going to mention, and I think it is important in this debate and, and frames it a little bit, is mm-hmm. um, one, one of my roles is, is trying to promote media of what is at the moment the Rugby League European Federation. It, it covers a lot of the Northern Hemisphere, um, mm-hmm. so European, again, is a, is a misnomer. Mm-hmm. But I, I've heard and seen of incidences of numerous countries trying to get official government recognition where they go into um, uh, you know, a, a proper representative bodies and say we are rugby, and those um, nationalities quite rightly turn around and say, but we've already got rugby. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the problem we then have is if you've got to explain who you are, you've lost the battle. Yeah, definitely. And we've never addressed that as a sport. And that's always been the problem with having with retaining of that rugby name. So, I mean, I think we'll go. If I could just go back to that first thing about Northern Union. It's it's a bit strange to look back now and, and look at the fact that Australia's first ever tour over to Great Britain, they played the Northern Union. They didn't even call themselves Great Britain at the time. So it, it was it was the Northern Union for at least, I think, maybe the first two tours they were. Um, and then, yeah, like you said, in, in the 20s, you know, they Northern Union became an outdated idea. And, you know, what what was the best way to go about it? Well, Let's call ourselves what the Australians are calling themselves. I mean, Australia was calling themselves Rugby Football League. It was the New South Wales Rugby Football League. So we still had rugby and football in there. Uh, they dropped the football at some point. I'm not sure exactly. It might have been around the, the 50s or 60s. They dropped the word football from it. Um, we don't have the same hang-ups in Australia about the word football because we're happy to have four different codes of the same thing called football, whereas... Obviously, over in in the Great Britain, you know, you guys have football, and that is what we would call soccer. Um, and you know, a lot of the a lot of the fans of that football in Australia have lamented the fact that they gave up the rights to the word football to a lot of different sports, and they've tried to push back, and you know, they've called their their body Football Federation Australia now. So, you know, I remember when that happened, I was quite a lot younger, and everyone was saying, "But that's just called soccer. Why are they not just called Australian soccer?" You know, that's that's what they are. And, you know, we've kind of given up that word. But if you talk to an older person, I mean, I'm not that old, I'm 40, but if you talk to anyone my age or older in New South Wales and you say football, they mean rugby league. If you talk to someone in a different part of Sydney and you say football, they mean rugby union. And if you talk to someone in Melbourne and say football, they mean AFL or Aussie rules, as it's actually called. So it, it just depends on where you are. And I think that's like you're saying, it's it's also the same thing over in England as well. It depends on which town you're in as to what you know what you mean by Absolutely. rugby. I mean, I, mean I, I think you've actually made the point there about why we're having this discussion. And hmm. the fact is that because there is such confusion over the words that are involved in our name, hmm. we rank wherever we do in whatever part of the world you're in. So we're always fighting um, mm. a battle about who we are 
before what we are. And, and that's why I, I, I find it hard that 130 years in, um, we still haven't got a name that immediately indicates everything we're about. That's so true. yes, in, in this part of the world, uh, football is taken to be the round ball game, which has and, and has had for a, you know for as long as as, um, as rugby's existed primacy mm-hmm. uh, as a winter sport. Now, I, I think the other element is that you know we moved to summer over here, which which again is a, is a complete rebrand. You know, one of the bravest moves we we made over here was to switch the seasons. Yeah, um, that is changing people's habits. Now, at the same time as doing that, I think you've got to look at. Well, if we're going to, you know, imagine you're, you're a major company and we're going to have a rebrand. Yeah. Uh, you don't just say, well, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll change the color of our logo. We might actually change what we're called and how we're perceived. Um, and I think for, you know, for, for, for again, t- taking your point of view, but, but looking at it over here, when, when I hear the word football related to Australia, mm. I think of Aussie rules. I don't think of soccer. Yeah. Um, you know, when I hear the word rugby, um, I think of rugby league. I don't think of rugby union. Yeah, see, um, in Australia, that... we've, yeah, in Australia, we've we've lost the word rugby. We we've lost it from the consciousness. So um, you have to you have to say rugby league, even if even if I walked around. So if I I walked around in Western Sydney where I am, and I said rugby, they would think I meant rugby union because we have yeah. we've lost that right. And it's I'm not sure why we we did over here, but we just basically went. We don't want to be called that. We'll call ourselves league. We'll call ourselves rugby league, but we won't call ourselves rugby. Like anything that's rugby without something else with it, all of a sudden means you're talking about the union game. So I don't know whether that was just bad marketing or whether we just didn't want to be associated with that term. But once we'd made that decision, we should have dropped the word rugby. Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. It really does. And, and I. I also think that, um, you know, again, probably what isn't appreciated as much um, over there um, is over here, those class distinctions that are associated with the two sports spill Mm. over into the coverage. Uh, They're blurring um, since the professional era in in both league and union, but clearly Mm -hmm. we have broadsheet newspapers that ally to what is termed the establishment that are rugby union driven. I mean, it's, it's the start of... The, the Six Nations this weekend, and rugby is everywhere, mm. and it's not rugby league. And one, you know, th- this isn't something new, but but what it is is it, in, it doesn't enable us to have coverage. Mm-hmm. That's the only problem. Um, and and whilst we're self-limiting in that way, then clearly, um, you know, we're we're trying to market ourselves with with one hand tied behind our back. When you start then moving into new markets like America and Canada. Um, you know, you, you you use the word rugby, and and they go, yeah, uh, we we've seen that. You know, Canada have been in the Rugby World Cup. And you go, well, actually, uh, they've been in part of a Rugby World Cup, and we shouldn't really be calling. It. And and once you're even in that debate, um, you know, how are you going to get balls in kids' hands? So I yeah. I just think we've missed the opportunity historically, and and at certain points within history, to decide what we want to be. Um, you, you, you quite rightly mentioned, you know, the first test matches that were ever played. Well, the, the first all golds tests were, mm. you know, against the Northern Union. Um, but the third and defining test was played in Cheltenham in the Cotswolds. Yeah. Again, I don't know how even in, you know, ni- 1908 you marketed a game in the southwest of England where you wanted people who were unfamiliar with that particular variant of the sport to come and watch the Northern Union play the all golds. Uh, and, and as I say, whilst there wasn't marketing in those days, it, it's the lessons you learn. And you would have thought that 130 years into uh, where we sit, we would have decided at, at, at you know, pinnacle level, mm-hmm. what, what are we going to call ourselves? And uh, e- even the International Federation, which has rebranded our, itself as IRL, mm-hmm. still has that rugby in, in that word. And, and I just, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I would have dropped it by now. I don't think we need it. I think it harms us rather than tells people who we are. Yeah, it's from what I can understand, obviously, over here, a little bit different. We don't we don't have that same. I mean, we still have class in a way, um, but Australia is a lot less class conscious than England is. Um, and I found it very interesting. There was a a survey, and I apologise to the young lady. I can't remember. She was she was doing a survey for one of her universities and asking people who were fans of rugby league to to answer a, a survey questionnaire. 
And uh, I thought, well, look, you know, I'm a fan of rugby league. I'm also a fan of the English rugby league, so I'm going to start answering the questions. I got to question two or three, and it asked, what class are you in? And I didn't know how to answer it. Um, I I'd actually honestly don't know what class you would say I'm in because I don't really – we don't really have the – the working class and the middle class and the upper class as much. We do still, obviously, we have rich people and obviously we have people who, you know, go to private school and play rugby and they're the ones who are the rugby... See, I did it myself. They're the ones who are the rugby union players and and it's generally the, the rest of the population are the, the rugby league supporters. So, you know, I found it sort of not confronting, but I sort of wasn't sure how you answer that question. So I can imagine it would be the similar thing for, say, a fan in Canada or a fan in America. You know, it's exactly. you'd sort of say, well, you could only follow this sport if, you, if you're working class because if you earn too much I, money, we don't want you involved in this sport. I think the other thing is that it's about breaking stereotypes. Mm. And if you um, ask the, the non-aficionado rugby league fan over here, perhaps somebody who has a... A passing interest when maybe the cup finals on, or mm. or let's hopefully we'll you know test matches are back and World Cups are played. Um, the image of rugby league, the the overall thought about why it doesn't get more wider spread coverage, even though clearly it has a lot of admirers among other professional sports people, is that it's deemed to be northern industrial and working class. Now, if you look at all of those tags. Uh, if you say it's northern, uh, mm. you are, again, going back to the idea that people outside of that area are, are not as welcome. They're, yep. they're, they're intruders, if you like. So whilst we're extremely proud of our history, it's almost like we're overprotective of it. Uh, industrial, again, doesn't exist. Um, you know, the deindustrialization of the north of England is one of the issues that rugby league over here has to be addressing. Um, it should have been addressing it, you know, maybe... 30 years ago, but I think we saw at the, the last general election over here that, you know, what, what was a, a supposed red wall became a blue wall because the industry of the north doesn't exist. The, the, the coal mines and, uh, and the shipyards that supported and underpinned rugby league are not there anymore and haven't been for a very long time. And, and it's the same with working class. Um, that it used to be a very defined economic distinction, that, and it's blurred now. It's it's may, may may be working or non-working class, and the problem that we've got is that whilst ever people still think of the word rugby league being associated with those kind of boxes, mm. we cannot move forward. So what you call yourself and the image that's perceived behind that is massive, and you don't get many opportunities to change that. And yeah. I just think. Um, we, we've missed those opportunities and that debate, that agenda item is not on, on any meeting anywhere in the world, but I think it could have a massive impact relatively quickly. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Actually, um, it's an interesting point. I think we're at a point here where I'd, uh, I had a, a recent um, episode where I was actually speaking with uh, one of our one of our podcasters from over here uh, from Rugby League Digest. So we were discussing the 1990 uh, kangaroo tour and obviously yeah. we were discussing how you know england had won or sorry great britain had won the first test match and the second match came right down to the wire and australia won right at the end and we decided to change to go say that uh, australia had lost and, and great britain wins that series and we sort of looked at it and went oh well i wonder what's what would have changed uh, and in during that time, we were sort of talking about the the great resurgence of the of the game in Great Britain around that time, and you know such great names, you know Elu Hanley, and you know your good friend Gary Schofield, and uh, obviously you know Martin the Fire, and there was you know plenty of other names we were talking about, and uh, we we put out a bit of a, a call to some guys just to talk to us about whether that was a bit of a false storm, whether those players had come through because the game had been had been better or whether it was just we were just lucky to have all those players all at the same time um i just want to if if you can indulge me i just want to quickly read there's an an email i got back from he, he now lives in australia but he's a um he's a native of of your part of the world um and he just want he just gave me a little bit of a, a good story like a just talking about his experience and i just thought i might just read that out because it may i think it may actually 
kind of feed into what we're talking about here. So um, his name's uh, Richard. So I thank Richard for sending this in. Basically, I'm going to try to read it as best I can word for word. And um, hopefully once we get through it, we can have a quick chat. So he said, England in the late 70s and 80s was an interesting landscape. Whilst the industrial north was in decline, after the halcyon days of the 50s and 60s, there was still a lot of clout in certain industries. Coal was still largely in force, with over 160 pits in operation across England and Wales. And then he said, but it's gone forward a bit. Back in the late 70s and early 80s, rugby league was in a relatively good position compared to today. Union was amateur, and whilst boot money was paid to Welsh miners, league clubs could still pay salaries to men who had sport as an alternative to death at 55 from Black Lung an almost guaranteed exit for a minor. There was money enough to pay good sportsmen and talented outside backs who could play either rugby league, football or boxing. Boxing was hard, and whilst the pay was good, it was corrupt and you could end up punch drunk. Football was a mess. Racism, racism, was, far from pre- sorry, racism, racism was far more prevalent there. With the National Front Bova Boys prevalent and many clubs such as Millwall, West Ham and Chelsea in London and Leeds, Newcastle and other clubs in the north, Everton, not known for its violent fans, was typical. Sorry, now known for its was typical. A mate of mine said their fans are as thick as shit. Their own songs were uh, Everton and Woo, shoot that N-word. Believe it or not, for many talented black players, rugby league was welcoming a par- comparison. Football also had a couple of other glaring weaknesses. Crowds were appallingly low. Grounds and infrastructure had barely improved from the 19th century. Violence was rife and players were paid a pittance for all their fame. So he is a West Ham supporter and he remembered in the mid-80s talking about the amazing salary of the West Ham player who could earn 50 grand a year playing first-team football in Division 1. Yeah, so national average salary was 10,000 quid, but football wasn't the... wasn't the thing it is now and where players earn 50 grand a week. Rugby league was largely on par with football. Crowds were lower and the stadiums were just as bad, not worse, if not worse in many cases, but not dramatically so. Rugby league was talking expansion. A club in London form got, full, got support, good support initially. People could go to games without fearing for their lives. And then he says, he's not exaggerating, going to some games in London, they was told, don't wear colours. Because if you got there, uh, sorry, go, don't wear colours and get there early and try to avoid major train stations if other clubs are travelling through and rugby league offered safe family fun. For players, if you had skill and talent and didn't want to get your face bashed in boxing or face the violence of football, rugby league seemed like a good option for many. So in the late 70s, talented youngsters took up the game. But England was changing, was it changing the society? After the Brixton race riots of the early 80s and the Luton versus Millwall riot and Kenilworth, Kenilworth Road in 1985, yeah. the famous night football died, something had to change. London and the South suddenly got money. By 1988, greed was good. Fortunes could be made in stockbroking, building, plastering, etc. Driving fast cars and party times suddenly became in vogue. Football had been may have been banned from Europe, but suddenly investment in the game off the back of the South's prosperity grew. New football, sorry, new players were coming to town and interest in football was growing to fever pitch. Football didn't need to play in Europe from the late 1980s. European players were playing for English clubs. Suddenly soccer was exotic. So he goes on, I'm not going to read the rest of it, but basically he goes on and just talks about um, the rest of the, like where everything kind of went from there. But I, I think at that point, that's where I was kind of interested in it because he makes the point that soccer was actually in a bit of a lull in the early 80s. Rugby league was in a bit of a high and we just never took advantage of that point. So, I mean, I, I'm obviously not old enough to really know much about that, but I do know about those those rights and I also know about the instances in, in you know football games or soccer games. And... I remember that being a, a big issue in, in England at the time. And it seems to be, you know, that, that sport just, they had a terrible image, but they just, they did, I don't know what they did, but they got themselves back to where they were the, the national game again. And rugby league just sort of died away. So I'm not sure if maybe in the 1980s, that was the time to maybe think about changing the name and, and trying to promote rugby league as a different kind of sport, as a family event or something. 
I think there's there's a hell of a lot of points there. I'm I'm still wiping my eyes at the thought of the 1990 Test series, and uh, <laughs> uh, of course, uh, the one word you didn't use about the second Test was that Great Britain were robbed clearly in the last minute, yeah. and um, should should have had a penalty for uh, Mal Meninga throwing Carl Gibson into the stand. Um, mm-hmm. But let's move on past that. Well, uh, well, I just, really... we just wanted to. <laughs> I, I'll just point from Australian point of no, view no, as well. No. Could could I just could I just say? Um, we picked it up in the episode. It's funny, uh, Michael Adams, I don't know if you've spoken to him before from Rugby League Digest. Um, he hadn't picked it up, but I, I did when I watched the replay, that the uh, Great Britain players had tried to put grease on their on their legs and rub it onto the ball just so that they could yes. force the Australians to drop the ball, which they had done successfully the week before. Uh, but they didn't get away with it in the second one. So the cheating didn't work the second time around, Phil. So I'm not yeah, sure whether yeah. that might have been also uh, might have changed that game. No, we were robbed. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I think there's about... Um, a hundred really interesting points in 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 that email mm-hmm. um i wish you could boil it down to one thing but you can't it again i think it, it proves that it's something that you you've got to look at over a period of time and, and and i think there's other things to build into that um where rugby league had come from over that period mm. um in the in the early to mid 70s rugby league came as close as it has over here to dying Mm-hmm. Um, 1973-74 was was a, was a seminal kind of a season. Um, Le- Leeds won the championship in 1972, and they, they they'd always been, and still are, perhaps the best supported club with access to uh, more uh, corporate resource because it, it's you know the the northern city that, that has mm-hmm. changed the most, and the only one that that really plays the game uh, with due respect to to, to Sheffield. Mm-hmm. Um, and Leeds won the title for for only the the third time in their history in '72, and their average crowd was four thousand, which is as low as it's ever been. Yeah. Um, there was no money in the game. There was no sponsorship in the game. There was no television coverage of the game. The the amateur game was increasingly frustrated, and it was around that time that Barlow was formed to look after the the interests of those that um, weren't playing semi-professionally. We had a change of governance. We brought in David Oxley and David Howes, and from being at probably its lowest end, um, they were almost given carte blanche and, and came with a, a different eye, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, both big rugby league fans from the city of Hull, um, but, but really um, you know, from backgrounds that weren't immersed in the administration of rugby league. And because they were given that free hand where clubs said, we were on the verge of bankruptcy, uh, we, we don't necessarily want power, we just need income. Yeah. We went through a golden period, and within 15 years, we were selling out Wembley for those test series, and the names of our players were well known. Um, yeah. So I think it shows that, irrespective of what other sports are doing and, and who you appeal to, um, there's always a point in history where you take your own destiny into your hands and, and change um, the perception of, of, of what you are. A lot yeah. of things came together around that time as well that clearly. Wigan were the first team to go fully professional, mm-hmm. uh, fully openly professional in any form of rugby. That that led to a massive increase in standard along with their dominance mm-hmm. and purchasing power. So, you know, that, I, I can remember going to Central Park to see a game there where Wigan virtually had an entire international team on the bench. They'd, you know, they'd signed enough to fill two sides and the players who weren't playing for them were better than most of the players that were playing in every other team. And then you got teams like Widners and Leeds trying to to emulate them or capture you know, some of the glory or, or mm. match them off the back of it. And, and whilst, again, that did lead to some financial problems, it just brought through more players of quality, whether that was buying them from uh, rugby union or, or developing them themselves or, or putting more money into the academies and junior games. And um, I think, was it 1983, the Barley Youth Tour went to Australia and New Zealand. Normally that, that would have been a sign for... Uh, you know, most of the players to have a, a very nice two weeks away and come back heavily beaten. Well, well, they won. Yeah. And virtually every one of those players was signed by professional clubs. And Gary Schofield was one of them. And, and you know, within a year of going on that tour, he was leading the tri-scoring charts at Hull at the age of 18 and playing for Great Britain. So I think it's a combination of everything that there was a rich seam of talent coming through. There was a, uh, the game itself was producing that kind of talent. Uh, and, and I think it had an administration that was prepared to back that kind of talent. What I would say is from 1990, when those names were household and still are, 
we produced some fantastic players. Yeah. Um, not quite the equal of an Ellery Hanley, who was a once-in-a-generation player, but mm. you know the, the, the likes of the ones we've seen in the modern era can hold their their records up for scrutiny against against any of those players in in the eighties and nineties, mm. and they're not recognised because the game hasn't found a way of recognising them. And yeah, to bring this back to the circularity of the conversation, that's because football realised that it needed to change its image. That all of the things. Uh, the correspondent mentions is correct. Mm -hmm. But at some point when they realised that they weren't appealing to companies to back them from a corporate point of view, broadcasters were starting to say, I'm not really sure we want to be showing scenes of fans fighting on the terraces when people are no longer talking about what's on the field. Um, there was a, 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 a real willingness to try and move to something more wholesome and it crystallised itself in the formation of the Premier League. And if we're talking about what you're called uh, determines how you're viewed, it's not known as football over here in the top echelons. It's known as the Premier League. Yeah. Um, yeah. The word football doesn't appear. Um, and I just think, you know, when we were at that point in the 80s and 90s where there was a, an element of preeminence, um, th there was interest outside of the traditional supporter base in how close Great Britain were to, to beating Australia in an Ashes series. There were names that were appearing on uh, sporting programmes alongside uh, those from other sports and were, and were known. Uh, we didn't capitalise on it. And one of the ways we could and should have done that was perhaps to have changed our image, and that would have involved rebranding. Um, yeah. I'm not sure that we've ever looked at other sports and seen what they've done and how they've done it. Yeah. Um, and 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 I think that's to our detriment at the moment because we're we're just fighting a battle of identity that detracts from the fact that our product stands the scrutiny of uh, any other. Yeah. Um, but it's, we never talk about the product. We never sell the product because uh, our name is wrong. It feels like the only thing that we do grab from other sports is how to run a structure, like a, a you know final structure or a league structure, or maybe. At some point in the 80s, there was a few coaches or whatever and looked at how they train in the NFL. That's pretty much all we've taken from other sports. Um, and But we've never really looked at the, the whole marketing point of view. And it really, I mean, I'm not a marketing expert. I'm probably the wrong person to speak about about this because um, I just look at rugby league and just think, why doesn't everyone watch this? Because it's the greatest thing anyone's ever seen. But, you know, it, I'm just not sure how how they get that across to other people. And I, look, I understand what you're saying. Definitely... The name is an issue. The name has always been an issue, and it's. I mean, like like you, like I was sort of saying, you know, when you say football, you think of AFL. You know, the Aussie rules down here. If you go to somewhere in Melbourne and say rugby, they have no idea that there's actually two of them. They just think it's yeah. all the same game. So even in our own country, we can't even. You know, like in in Australia, we where whereas it seems like the game is strong. I mean, obviously, you know, I hear you quite often talking about. You know, Australia is strong and the NRL is strong. It's it's really not as strong as it seems, like it, as it feels like it is. It's it's really played in two capital cities and and part of a, another country, but realistically, that other country prefers the other rugby over us. So, you know, it's it's still there's a lot of room to grow just in Australia. There's a lot of marketing potential and and growth just inside that country. But you know, like I, it, I think. There's two issues here. One is how do you um, gain extra prominence in an area where the sport is already known? So that clearly mm -hmm. is Australia and the north of England. Mm -hmm. But also there comes a point when you need to say, um, the point that you made is absolutely right about what, why are we not universally recognised? And, and I'm convinced that one of the reasons is because nobody knows about us. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you appeal to somebody in Brazil or Argentina or Norway or... Um, you know, there's great work going on in Africa at the moment, but a yeah. lot of these federations and governing bodies are struggling first and foremost for recognition. Mm -hmm. And and to you know, the, the way they're going to do that is to make themselves something different. And the way you do that is not to change your product, but to change your name. And I think um, we're, you know we're at a point now where, particularly in terms of over here, when we moved to the summer, there was a, there was an even greater delineation between the two rugbies. Mm -hmm. When they both played in exactly the same fixture window, 
you know, the direct comparisons are obvious um, and harder if, in some respects to, to establish. But once you say we're a summer sport, that's a decision to do that, to, to give you a, a little bit more oxygen of publicity. Mm-hmm. But if you don't take the opportunity to say uh, who you are in a slightly different way, then I think you, you're only half exploiting that. You know, you go to a major company in America and say, we've got a World Cup coming up and, you know, the American wheelchair team are playing. We'd like you to sponsor them. Okay, the Rugby World Cup. Yeah, I've seen that. That's sevens, isn't it? Mm-hmm. No, no, yeah. actually. Here's where we need to make another distinction. There's actually four forms of rugby. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, there's union, there's sevens, there's league and there's nines, uh, which isn't fully established. And that's another debate about whether it needs to be to, again, grab a different audience. But if you're a kid you're not going to spend time working out which is which. And, and I think a lot of the things we learned from spreading the game in Toronto was um, the, the, you know, the rugby, if that's the word you're going to use, is you, you've almost got to be neutral about yeah. what it is to, to just to explain that it isn't one of the sports that you're comfortable with. If you're then going to take that to the next level and say, well, the primacy we want to sell you is something that we call rugby league, you've got to drop the rugby part. Um, yeah. And it's not about, you know, what works best in Australia or over here. Um, and in a town like Warrington, for example, there won't be anybody that hasn't heard of rugby league. And if, if you make a change, there'll be some traditionalists that don't like it. But that's the whole idea of change. Mm-hmm. But it, it's the market you could attract if you got this right um, globally uh, and, and investors and, and coverage. And, and, I, and I think um, part of the issue... Um, is is something I mentioned right at the very beginning. It's about self-confidence. Mm-hmm. We, we are not a brash sport. Uh, you know, we might have Peter Volandis at the moment who is making some you know, some noises that, that's getting the game heard over that's there. Right. And he's got well, admirers over, hi- I over think, here. I think with Peter, I think with Peter Volandis, he's already changed the name of the game. He calls it Rugby League. So I think that maybe yeah. that's what we're going to change it to. It's just going to change to <laughs> Rugby. <laughs> but what you know, what he is is he's a figurehead, yeah. and that's something that we haven't had over here for a very long time. We haven't had a spokesperson. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had too many people that want to be administrators but don't want to be a public face. And I think the same is true in some respects of the international board. You know, and, uh, you know, they're, they're not front facing. They do a lot of really good work in terms of regulation. Yeah. But you know, in terms of selling the sport, that's a really really tough job. Um, yes. Because what you what you need in this day and age is is someone who is going to find a hymn sheet and sing from it and get others to follow, um, and and I just think that your self confidence is based on you walk into a room and go hello I am, and yes. if you go hello I I'm not somebody else, yeah. then nobody's going to listen to you, yeah, um, exactly. and all of it is related to the fact that we we were born with two chips on our shoulder just to balance ourselves out because we're the the group that broke away and we've never got away from that it's all there's almost like a a hint of deference in everything we are Mm. Um, and how do you get over that well you create something for yourself now these are all philosophical debates and because unless some marketing agency can come up with something that the vast majority in agreement that um you know reflects who we are and what we are and what we stand for, yeah. um, then it's it's almost an impossible exercise. It's like nailing blancmange to the wall. That's right. But I think the important thing is that we have this discussion. Uh, and the other thing that leads into is what your values are, which I think is something that you, you sort of mentioned when we first started discussing this. That how mm. do you get over what you stand for? Whatever family sport means, which is, I have to say, if we had another program to talk about family sport, you know, I'd be vehemently against calling ourselves the family sport because virtually every family I know is a fairly dysfunctional unit. uh, (laughs) You know, I'm not sure what you're trying to say by saying family, but there's lots of things that we do stand for. Inclusivity at the moment is a much better word than family. Yeah, Um, I think even even diversity. If you look at you know, there's a hell of a lot of work we could do on on both hemispheres, but. Where we are at the moment puts us ahead of a lot of other sports in terms of, of all of that. The, the variants that we're playing of PDRL and LDRL and yeah, uh, you know the, the primacy definitely. we're giving to the women's game. We, we, we are doing some things where our values shine against other sports, but they're not incorporated in our name. 
So I think you go back to your articles of association that any other company would, and you just say, what are we? What are we trying to achieve? What do we stand for? What do we need to call ourselves? How do we need to represent ourselves as an image to get all this across? One of the most famous companies over here at the moment is, is Marks and Spencers. Mm. You know, they, they've been leading retail for, um, you know, again, a, almost as long as rugby league has started in a market as a penny bazaar and became one of the most established shopping, shopping brands for a certain type of customer. They're on the verge of extinction at the moment because mm. everybody perceives that company's name to be associated with only a certain type of person. And what they've lost is the ability to have wider spread appeal. Now, they stand for quality, if you like, but that message has been completely lost. And they're going through a really painful process at the moment of trying to re-identify themselves and make themselves relevant in a, a difficult market. You know, they, they, they were mainly a clothes-based business and yeah. have gone heavily into food. And the food that they produce is actually now outrunning what they were originally known for, um, you know, in, 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 in ma mainly goods for women to wear of a certain age. Mm -hmm. and, and it's something that we need to do. Um, I'm not saying that they've done it successfully, and that's the model that we need to follow. But they haven't yet. But the fact that a company of that size and standing is doing that, we need to do that. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think there's... I'm just going to make another. I'm just going to go back again. So I'm just going back to this Northern Union part. So, um, I th it feels like, and obviously we can't be in the minds of of the the men and uh, who were in that meeting or the men who were in the you know the breakaway competition. I even don't like calling it a breakaway competition, but we'll get past that. Um, but it feels like they always thought that they were going to come back and rejoin the rugby union so they just thought we'll just give it a name for now and that'll be fine and then as time went on obviously you know they they weren't allowed back um so you know they had to push forward if if they had been more revolutionary if they had thought well you know we deserve the right to this rugby name just as much as they do and if they had gone out there and said all right well you're the rugby union and we are professional rugby or something like that, you know what I mean? Like they had actually kept the rugby name, and they had actually put themselves out there, and they had actually tried to, to, I don't know, claim the name for themselves. I'm not sure if that may have made a bigger difference. But then we are getting to that whole point. I'm just going to jump forward a bit. You know how you talked about the the rugby World Cup against the Rugby League World Cup, and and our opportunity to to go after them. You would imagine that the officials would have been quite afraid to go after such a powerful organization because rugby union from what i i understand in over in uh england and all i suppose all around europe is is backed up by you know lawyers and you know they're all they're all ex-rugby players and it's you know there's a lot of political clout there as well so i i think that's probably the reason why they did let the the rugby part slip because they you know maybe they thought they won't get any, any funding maybe they thought they'll get sued back um, you know, I think they had every right to sue. They had the, the copyright to it, but you know, maybe that was part of the reason. But if, in the original instance, they would have just headlong, sort of, not even really attacked the rugby, but basically just went, "We're also rugby. This is who we are," and just kept that rugby name, whether that would have made a big difference. I, I think that you've raised a couple of really interesting points. That I, I'm really not sure you can point too much of a finger at the people that were at the the front line when it happened. I think yeah. it's at what point do they stand back and say, we've now created something, we're not going back. Mm -hmm. So if we're going forward, one of the things we need to do is establish ourselves. And yeah. the fact that they kept the, the word Northern until 1922 says a lot about that mindset. Yeah. I think the fact that they were happy to still be union, um, even though by the time those rules had changed in uh, was it 1906 that, yeah. um, that the, the you know the lineout was was gone? There's something different. They're already on the field. Something completely different. The bit that was missing for me was that they didn't then follow through. Okay. Um, now I think that says something about those people were not really expansionists. They wanted to play games in other places 
to make money. They wanted yeah. to try and bring on the Welsh so that, yes, it would be great if that more people played the game, but so they could also steal the best Welsh players. Yes. Um, which is what happened. They weren't revolutionary in the sense that they allowed football to take over from because they managed to lose a hell of a lot of the clubs in the north anyway mm. by the manner in which they went about being um, you know, almost semi-professional. So, yeah. yes, at the time you don't think about the ramifications, but there's a point where you can. Mm. Um, and, I, and I think that's where it comes back to the Rugby Union World Cup debate and the name of it. If you decide you're not going to challenge it, and I think there's a case to say that um, lawyers would have said if it's a breach of copyright law, it's a breach of copyright law. It doesn't matter how many uh, resources you bring to, to any trial, you're not going to win it. I think it was just pure fear of losing money and it being a long litigation yeah. over a period of time that um, you know w was an expensive sidetracking. Once you say, all right, we've got, two, we, we've got an option here, we can sue them. We're not taking that option. The mm -hmm. second thing you do is say, right, well, we'll distance ourselves from it. We yeah. won't keep persisting on calling ourselves rugby because we have acknowledged to ourselves that we've now um, had that right usurped. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the, you know, we have a lot of people here that talk about there's a lack of coverage for rugby league. Well, I think that's something that rugby league has to do something about. And what you're not going to do is, you know, just ring up a sports editor every day and say, give us more coverage because we've got a great game. Didn't yeah. you see it last night? You actually say, right, well, let's give them a reason to feature our sport because they're not comparing it to something else which they already are wedded to. Yeah. Um, so I, I think the debate is, is about periods in time when we could have previously done this. And I think the, the, the advent of Super League is, is the last time that we, we, we could have done and we didn't. Yeah. But I just would love to see this debated on an agenda. You know, that, as I've said before, I, I live at, you know, number one ivory tower on fantasy island and a, a lot of these ideas would immediately be thrown out of court because it's just fanciful nonsense but mm. i just think it's it's absolutely crucial to where we're going to go in the future what resource we're going to attract how we're going to be seen by an increasingly fractured audience what appeal we've got to fans of sport but not necessarily moving forward fanatical fans of any particular sport mm. how do you attract younger people who are not interested in watching 80 minutes of a live game but, but want to see astonishing highlights of acrobatic tries or you know uh, uh, crunching tackles well what do you sell that under the banner of and if you keep using the word rugby we're actually helping somebody other than ourselves who is our rival yeah. um, and that to me uh, even from a business uh, perspective makes no sense um, and if that means giving up some of what would be our traditional name, but not our history, then we should do it. And I think the other point you made that I was going to come back to, which is absolutely right, is the international team over here has had three different names. Mm. We, we can't even really fully um, get to agreement on international appearances because some people played for Northern Union, some people played for England. Now, we had the, the ridiculous... Um, scenario of Welsh players playing for England and then Great Britain which didn't really come in until after the Second World War and they're all the national team and they've all got different identities that suited the time they played and none of them are really right but yet we've done it all before and if we could change the name in 1922 why can't we change the name now we're not it's not that revolutionary if it's going back and doing something again but doing it maybe differently or better yeah yeah, no, definitely. And it's at this point in time, it seems like the right time to be looking at something like this because, as you've mentioned, and um, I'll shout out to Michael Carboni, who you've obviously spoken to recently, Chasing Kangaroos Pod. Um, he, every week, you know, or twice a week, you know, talks to someone in a different part of the world that's that's either just starting to play rugby league or has been playing it for a while and, and is looking for, you know, looking for a bit of exposure, looking to tell everyone that they're there. It, it's you know like it, there's so many places that around the world this this sport is is ready to to be catapulted into um and it, it's always a problem like every time he talks to someone it's always the problem with rugby you know the problem with rugby union is it's always a topic and you know some some places they can they can be uh 
you know, coexisting and they're, they're happy. And, you know, in certain places, the rugby is happy because it's something, you know, for their, their rugby players to play, you know, during their off season, they'll, you know, players will play both sports and that, that's all great. And we, we'd be happy for that. But if, if they're playing rugby union in the winter and then all of a sudden they're playing league 13s in the summer, you know, it's, they can still do both sports, but all of a sudden it's a different thing. It's not, it's not like they're playing two parts of a, of, of a broken game. They're playing two different sports. Like it's like someone who would play, you know, over here we would play rugby league as kids and then play cricket in the summer. You know what I mean? It's the same. It's, it's two different sports rather than treating ourselves as, as like the, the little brother sport. Let's treat ourselves as a different sport. Well, n- nobody mistakes netball for basketball just because they've got the word ball in their, their title. Um, yeah. And I, I just think you, you're not losing anything. You're asserting yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's the one thing we've, we've, we've never done, I don't think. And all of this talk about um, how we are going to roll out the sport in the future, I think that it's just a piece of the jigsaw that, that's never really been addressed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, who, who, who are we? What do we represent? Um, you know, what do we stand for? What do we call ourselves? To me, all of that is wrapped up in image. And whilst, you know, we may have been strong at other parts in our history and our image took care of ourselves either in northern industrial England when, you know, uh, virtually everything that was made in, in this country came from the north. It was a cachet, but it no longer is. Um, not to the same extent, and, it, and and as you you rightly point out, the eastern seaboard of Australia, um, you don't really need to explain what footy is. It, mm. It's got its identity, but how are you going to sell it in Perth? Yeah. You know, how are you going to get a, a, a you know the people of Wellington realizing that you know it isn't the All Blacks and something that they play, and that, and and it, you know how do you how do you showcase the best of what you've got? If people aren't even prepared to look at you, you can you can have the finest product in the world. If you can't get it on a shelf ahead of somebody else's, it's not going to be picked up and consumed. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, I think I think that might be unless you've got any more points. I think that might be sort of getting us to the end because uh, otherwise we're just going to go around in circles, Phil. Because um, we can't really rename it. We can't go back in time and do that. Um, and I agree with you. Like the when you brought this up as a topic, I had never really thought of it. You know, I mean, I, you obviously think about the, the issues with, with the name and things like that, but I never really thought, well, what if they had taken one of those opportunities to actually rename the sport? What would have happened? You know, would we be would we be a, a large minority sport or, or a small majority sport or whatever we are at the moment in, over in England? And would we be in three states in Australia and, and, you know, part of New Zealand? Like, would we have taken over half the world i i don't know what's i think we would just say that yes we would because we're rugby league fans so you know we're always optimists and we're always looking to you know pump the tires of our own sport yeah and i think as tony collins points out we are a sport of lost opportunity Mm. well we we between us have probably found four or five places in the in the game's history where this could have been looked at and maybe might have had a material significant difference i think the call from from, from, from this uh, podcast would be let's not waste the next opportunity and because of what's happened with coronavirus throughout the globe uh, this is the nearest that the sport's got to a blank sheet of paper to come together and, and start talking and looking at who we are what we are and, and how we move forward together and um, there's, there's a lot of uh, common ground uh, a lot more than there was before this this pandemic happened You know, everybody's looking at how do we get more money into the sport? How do we grow it? How do we go forward together? What have we learned from the North American um, enterprise that at the moment is on hold? And, you know, is the NRL more predisposed to expansion than it's been for a number of years? Uh, all of that, I think, you know, when that gets discussed, those who are meeting at a high power level, can you please put on the agenda who we are? Yeah. Definitely. Well, I mean, I think it's time to, like you said, it's time to do something about not even not even if we don't change the name, just something about the way that the game is marketed. And we can't sit around and wait for millionaires to turn up, billionaires to turn up and invest money and and call us call it Super League Two or something. We've we've got to we have to sort of go out there and 
you know, the game has to build itself. And I must say in Australia, it has built nicely over the last 25, 30 years. It's, it is getting to the level that it maybe was once was in the 90s, but it's taken a long time for it to do that. And, uh, you know, I, I think over in Australia here from, from the expansionists and from the ones who, you know, are really interested in the game over there, there's some genuine worry about what's happening over there and, and whether, you know, there's going to be a, whether there's actually going to be an English Super League, Rugby League to, you know, in 10, 15 years' time, we just, we're really, I think, I don't know if I'm speaking for everyone, but just myself, I'm just worried that this game's going to go back to being an, an amateur sport over in, in England. It just feels like there, it's more regression than, than expansion happening. Then it needs to take matters into its own hand and decide how it can amongst the, the, the white noise of sport, mm. raise itself a little bit above that uh, parapet. And, uh, you know, one of the things I think it needs to look at to end where we began is, mm. is what it calls itself. Yeah, definitely. But it has to be done globally. Yes. It's, you know, it's no, there's no point one part of the game calling itself one thing. And, uh, you know, we need to establish a brand for our sport, for the modern era, to help us get out of this coronavirus crisis Mm-hmm. And if we do, there is positivity out there. Well, that's right. Well, I mean, there's a. It's hopefully it goes ahead, but there's a World Cup happening later in this year and uh, over over there, and you know, hopefully, some of the money that is is raised from that World Cup is is enough to to also bring on some change. Uh, look, I'll, I'll. I think we'll leave it there, Phil. I don't want to. Otherwise, yeah, we'll be sure. talking around in circles and circles all night. But I've really, <laughs> I've really appreciated. Um, uh, listening to you talk, it feels like I was listening to a forty twenty podcast for for some of it. Um, <laughs> I but, am sorry. No, no, no. That's, I really appreciate it. it. Was really great. Um, I, at certain points, I had to remember that I was actually recording a podcast and not just listening to one because when you stop talking, I I had to talk again. Um, so you know that that's that was very interesting. Uh, look, thank you, and and obviously you know everyone in Australia hopes everyone in in Great Britain the you know the, the Great Britain we're not just going to say England I'll say Great Britain uh, the best for you know this coming year and we hope that you can stage the greatest World Cup ever and uh, we'll all be watching on and be very happy to watch it well we'll all stay in touch and hopefully at some point we'll all even get the chance to do a a live podcast together which would be great oh that'd be fantastic all right well thanks phil and uh good morning to you and i hope you had a great day have a great day cheers thanks, thanks for getting in contact 